Chapter Nine of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Nine. Not far from the White House, almost in the shadow of the Department of State, stands an old brick house whose many-sided walls could, if they desired, tell strange stories of the past, and perhaps of the present also, for who knows what comedies and tragedies are transpiring every day at our very footsteps. It is the Octagon House, a bit of the history of Washington, a house of memories, a house of shadows. For many years it was untenanted and deserted save by a well-authenticated ghost, a most unsociable ghost, who preferred solitude to the best society, and made night a thing of terror to curious adventurers. At the present time, however, the lower floors are used during the day by the Society of American Architects, and the chance visitor is shown over it by the janitor, who inhabits the top floor, if the latter happens to be at home and obligingly disposed. He displays the secret doors, now, alas, with latches and obtrusive hinges, the unexpected closets and mysterious hallways, the subterranean passage through which persons well known to history passed and repassed during the troubled days of 1812. Persons unknown to history are also said to have had business which led them through this passage, and imagination runs rampant as one explores the short bit that escaped the renovation of 18th Street. One gazes with a feeling of awe into the room where the Treaty of Peace was signed, and with interest at the room where Dolly Madison slept during the days the British were in the capital city, and the White House too dangerous for a woman. But the visitor is not yet satisfied. Was there not, he asks curiously, some tragedy connected with the house or with the old Virginian who built it? and then perhaps he hears the story of the octoroon, whose uneasy spirit escapes at night from the wall where she was incarcerated, and moves restlessly about the silent rooms looking for her murderer, or the slave locked in the attic, who starved rather than submit, or the bride who jumped from the top of the spiral staircase, or— but the visitor has heard enough and departs, glad to get back into the noise and sunshine of everyday life. Perhaps, though, he pauses at the front door and looks back, looks through the circular hall and out the window opposite into the neglected old walled garden, and imagines it again rose-scented, with trim box-bordered paths and close-clipped turf. He sees the rooms ablaze with light, echoing to careless laughter and the tap of dancing feet. He sees the host with courtly manners and true southern hospitality, but withal hot-tempered and revengeful. And also in the background he sees the octoroon. And as he slowly walks up the street, he wonders, be he never so matter-of-fact, what happens there at night when the doors and windows are closed. If— but he shrugs his shoulders incredulously as he hails a passing car and straightway forgets all about it. On a certain wet December evening, however, nothing supernatural would have been observed about the Octagon House, had one plucked up courage to venture in. On the contrary, a no less thoroughly alive person than Count Vladimir sat in the old dining-room, and, with the assistance of his friend, Colonel St. John, 
carefully examined a map spread out before them upon a rough deal table, for the architects were not yet in possession and furniture was limited. Heat and light were apparently limited also, for they wore their overcoats and shivered now and then with the penetrating damp of the place, while two candles in tin candlesticks did their best to accentuate the surrounding darkness, for although it was but a little after six o'clock, the shades of night had settled over the city some time since, and now held undisturbed sway everywhere. The two men sat side by side, that they might both look at the map. Their faces were towards the hall, the door leading into which was carefully closed, and with only the blank wall behind them. There was an alertness about Colonel St. John noticeably different from his former manner. His hair was brushed, and he had again returned to his razor with consequent improvement in his personal appearance. His voice, too, had lost the thin, unpleasant whine, and altogether he gave the impression of a man who has again some interest in life. The trembling of his hands, however, and the shifty expression in his bloodshot eyes betrayed the habitual drunkard. "'Is this the best you can do?' inquired Count Vladimir abruptly, as he scanned the map critically, while his companion watched him with keen anxiety. "'I had so little data on which to work,' was the deprecating reply. "'I did the best I could.' "'But it is not reliable?' "'Perhaps not entirely.' "'Explain again as concisely as possible.' The old man leaned forward, his shaking finger indicating on the map the points to which he referred. "'This,' he said slowly, "'is the mouth of the Potomac. I could not go below that, naturally.' Count Vladimir nodded impatiently, and he continued slowly. "'Here are the outer defenses of Washington, Fort Hunt, and Fort Washington. Their garrisons are noted on the margin. These stars show the locations of their batteries.' this information is tentative merely. I had no opportunity to verify it. These red squares indicate the beds of submarine mines, also tentative, but presumably accurate. Nothing absolute, interrupted Count Vladimir. Nothing reliable. Doubtful information, Colonel, is sometimes worse than none at all. Colonel St. John's trembling finger followed the course of the river upon the map. Here, he continued, is the arsenal. I have a separate plan of it in my pocket drawn to scale, setting forth the strength and location of all the batteries in great detail. This information is not tentative. I drew the plan myself from personal observation, and know it to be correct. There are improvements in process of erection there, and I had private access to the grounds. He produced a sketch as he spoke, and the two bent over it with interest. "'How did you get this information, Colonel?' inquired Count Vladimir suddenly. Colonel St. John smiled. It was not a pleasant smile, and his bushy eyebrows were drawn together over his bleared blue eyes. "'I have an acquaintance employed in the War Department,' he said slowly, "'who was kind enough to show me around one day. He had access to the files. Also, he owes me much money.' Count Vladimir nodded comprehendingly. "'The result of an evening or so at Jackson City,' he said suavely. "'I understand. Proceed, Colonel. You interest me.' "'He is willing to oblige me in various little ways,' continued the old man quietly. 
because if I pressed my claim and brought the matter before the authorities, he would probably be discharged. It is thus a great republic ensures the integrity of its employees. The rain dashed suddenly against the window, and the shrunken frames rattled with the force of the wind. Count Vladimir turned up the sable collar of his coat and glanced about curiously. "'So this is the house,' he said slowly. His companion acquiesced silently. "'When I was a boy,' he said at last, "'many years ago, Count, I lived in Washington, in this immediate neighborhood. I know the house and its history well.' It was an admirable selection, Colonel, and reflects credit on your judgment. When I applied for the position of caretaker, said Colonel St. John with a dry smile, I had no difficulty in securing the billet. It was not in demand. What is that? said Count Vladimir abruptly. Both men sprang to their feet and listened breathlessly. Only the splashing of the rain and the trot of a passing horse broke the stillness. I could swear, exclaimed Count Vladimir, that I heard the rustle of a woman's skirts. I heard nothing, replied his companion slowly, nothing. You must have heard it. The sound of silk is unmistakable. Colonel St. John shrugged his shoulders. You are not the first Count to hear strange noises in this house. I am not superstitious myself, but I do not sleep here. I prefer Jackson City. The Russian resumed his chair and took up the sketch of the arsenal, examining it minutely. "'For how long are you capable of keeping sober?' he inquired suddenly. The old man shrank visibly, a cringing manner replacing the faint assumption of manliness, and the corners of his mouth working miserably. "'Not long,' he faltered uncertainly. "'Not long. I am an old man count and not strong. I must have stimulant.' This sketch, continued Count Vladimir, carefully rolling it as he spoke, is excellent. I want more of them. Also, I want other information. I shall get you appointed in the Department of State. But you must keep sober, do you understand? For how long? Until I have no further use of you, which I fear, Colonel, from the turn affairs have taken lately, will be some months. Once a week, or oftener if necessary, I will meet you here. Meantime, in the evenings you can continue your chicken-raising at Jackson City. Perhaps you have other friends employed in the War Department who would be willing to oblige you. If so, cultivate them. And what do I get for this service? inquired Colonel St. John, a keen, calculating expression for a moment lighting up his dim eyes. When the work is satisfactorily completed— replied Count Vladimir slowly, you will receive from my government an adequate compensation. From me you obtain your personal safety. The day is past, Colonel, when you could dictate your own terms. The muscles of the old man's face were twitching uncontrollably. He leaned forward and moistened his parched lips with his tongue. I saw him yesterday, he whispered hoarsely. Lindhurst? He nodded. He turned and looked after me, he continued, dropping his voice still lower. I believe he followed me, though I did not look around. He never saw me but once, yet I think he remembers me. If he finds you, said Count Vladimir with a short laugh, 
Your days of liberty and usefulness are over. However, let us return to business. Are you familiar with the present international controversy? I have some knowledge of it. Good. You recall the Roostchuk muddle? Well, it is necessary that I ascertain the policy of this government in regard to it. I desire the entire history from the beginning to the end. I have reason to believe that the most important papers will soon be in my possession, but there will be others of great value. Now follow closely what I say. I wish your whole attention, Colonel. And Colonel St. John, with a visible effort, concentrated his wandering thoughts and listened intently as his companion spoke slowly and concisely, carefully emphasizing certain words and instinctively lowering his voice, while the candles on the table spluttered in the draught from the loose casing about the window, and the gnawing of a mouse in the empty hall seemed painfully distinct. Suddenly Count Vladimir sprang to his feet. "'There is someone else in this house!' he exclaimed angrily. "'Who is it?' "'There is no one, Count.' "'I tell you, I felt someone look across my shoulder as we bent over the table just now. I even heard someone breathe.' He clutched his companion by the shoulder and held him as though in a vice. "'By heaven!' he said through his clenched teeth. "'If I thought you were playing a double game!' But the ashen face and trembling limbs of the old man refuted the accusation even better than the eager protestations which poured from his lips, and the utter absence of anything to break the monotony of mouldy walls and bare boards, save their own two wooden chairs and deal-table, demonstrated the impossibility of concealment. "'Well,' said Count Vladimir, releasing his companion, "'I believe you, Colonel, and it is fortunate for you that I do. When I begin to doubt you, I shall have no scruples about informing the police of your whereabouts.' He picked up his hat and smoothed it carefully. "'I will go now,' he remarked, "'as I have another engagement before dinner. A busy evening, but profitable.' Good night, Colonel. Colonel St. John accompanied his guest to the front door and stood a moment watching him descend the steps. As he turned to re-enter the house, the candle in his hand suddenly went out, leaving the hall in total darkness. He carefully groped his way towards the dining-room, but stopped abruptly. Who is here? he demanded. Who is it, I say? There was an instant, intense silence, then the sound of quick panting breath and a sudden blast of cold air. Colonel St. John stumbled forward and pushed open the dining-room door. Grasping the remaining candle, he returned to the hall. It was quite empty, but the door at the back, leading into the garden, stood open, and the wind blew it back and forth upon its creaking hinges. He closed it hastily, turning the rusty key with difficulty, and retraced his steps to the dining-room. Halfway across the hall he stopped irresolutely. The atmosphere was filled with a subtle perfume, very different from the musty air he had previously inhaled. Colonel St. John sniffed curiously, then reached for his hat. In his younger days he had not been deficient in physical courage, but he lost no time in seeking the street, and drew a breath of heartfelt relief as he closed the door of the octagon house behind him. Meanwhile, in the old garden, the water lay in little pools upon the neglected flower-beds, and the paths were inch-deep with sticky black mud. It was not an attractive place for an evening stroll, 
yet an irregular line of footsteps showed that someone had recently passed through, presumably taking a shortcut from one street to the other. These footsteps had evidently been made by a man of at least average height, and they led directly to the gap in the old brick wall at the back of the garden. Sticking in the mud at the base of the wall was an overshoe, small and lined with fur, a shoe such as ladies wear over their slippers when in evening dress. It did not seem applicable to the footprints in the garden. End of chapter 9